This week, we have nutrition communications expert Barbara Mayfield on the show. She's going to help us optimize our nutrition ed sessions that we have with children, but also improve our communication skills across the board, whether it's doing presentations within our district, to the board, to other stakeholders. Honestly, this interview is so rich with insights, you're going to walk away with a lot of value. Let's jump right in. Hello, Barbara. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on your show. So I really wanted to have you on because when I looked at your website and some of the work that you have posted online, I thought my audience could benefit from hearing from someone who has made clear nutrition communication kind of their life's work. So before we get into some of the tips, can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to nutrition and dietetics in the beginning? Sure. I, in fact, it's always fun when you meet someone in our field or really any field to find out what led them to study or decide on a career in a particular area. And in fact, when I taught nutrition communication at Purdue for 16 years, this was something that I had my students share with the rest of the class. Why did you pick your major? So I love this question. <laughs> and in fact, on my website, I have a place where people can write their stories and I post them. So I, I find this very fascinating. So my own story that led me to dietetics actually led me first to foods and nutrition. So I went to Purdue and my initial major was what we call foods and nutrition and business. And I had a career objective of that at that time of developing recipes and maybe eventually becoming the director of the Good Housekeeping Institute or something like that. So that was my aspiration. So then as I began my studies, the faculty that I worked with really encouraged me to double major in not just foods and nutrition and business, but dietetics and encouraged me it would just be a few extra classes and then get my RD credential and that it would open doors. And I, I thought, yeah, that's probably a good idea. And as I progressed in my studies, I really found that the nutrition courses appealed to me as much, if not more, than the food courses. So I was very glad that I had made that decision. And I also, as a both an undergraduate and a graduate student, minored in communication because I've always had an interest in communicating and teaching whatever interests me. That sounds like such a solid foundation. I feel like so many people I come across didn't even know where they were headed by the second year of undergrad. They still weren't totally sure what they were trying to do. So for you to already have that intro to communications and business right out the gate must have really paid off. It really did. And and I will also say that what led me to have a specific interest in what at the time was more called nutrition education, and, and still is that focus, we had a guest speaker from the Dairy Council at a student meeting. And I just thought to myself, that person has my dream job. And even though I've never worked for the Dairy Council <laughs> in my life, that type of position where you were teaching people about nutrition just fascinated me. So then when I went to graduate school, I really focused on nutrition education and how to be effective in nutrition education and have never looked back. That's, that's always been my focus. In your bio, you mentioned that you were interested in creating educational resources even when you were a teenager. What form did that take on? What did that look like? Well, you know, probably went back before I was a teenager. So when I was younger, I did lots of babysitting. And I even remember probably the first time I was developing materials to teach people was I might have been maybe a sixth grade or something. And I was given the job of taking care of a neighbor child before school and getting them on the bus with me and that kind of thing. And so I didn't just babysit them, I taught them. I can remember making worksheets for them. And I just, <laughs> and then through high school, I had a 
preschool kind of age camp in my side yard. And I hired other kids to work for me. And I developed curriculum for teaching and games and all kinds of things. So I've just always had a passion for education. So when you had the camp, how old were you then? I started probably when I was in middle school or, or junior high is what we called it. And by the time I was in my upper levels of high school, I was doing some kind of nanny work and camp counseling work where I was working for someone else. But probably through maybe my sophomore year in high school, I, I had, I, it was called play school. I probably oh, did it five or six so years. Cute. You came up with that name. You're, that's yes. just such a, that's very impressive. What a, not everybody has that kind of job. from the beginning. <laughs> So how did the little kids feel about being given worksheets? And is that something that, like, as you taught, you realized that little kids might not want worksheets? Well, you know, back, I mean, we're talking like the 1960s. So I don't know. I probably made cool ones. I don't know. I I just remember creating lessons and things for kids. Now, when play school, it was all hands-on and games and I wrote songs and stuff like that. It wasn't worksheets so much I was, wow. you know they colored or whatever but um, it hadn't even occurred to me that it could be the 60s I was picturing you like going to Kinko's and making copies <laughs> of your <laughs> tools so you did these by hand if, if I made anything that got that, that had to be duplicated we're, we're talking those those purple sheets that you'd stick between pieces of paper and then trace wow <laughs> that's even I'm more impressive that really adds to it. You put the work in. I always, I see these That's days right. little kids doing amazing entrepreneurial things with the help of the internet. And I always say, oh, well, if I had the internet when I was a kid, I'd be loaded by now too. But maybe not because <laughs> apparently well, you could have been an entrepreneur in the 60s and <laughs> I just am making excuses. Well, in some ways, I think that by not having the internet encouraged me to be more creative because otherwise I would have just been looking on Pinterest or something and, and I had to come up with my own ideas. Yeah. So I, I don't regret not having the internet. Okay. I like that perspective. <laughs> I saw you have a WIC background too. So I started out at WIC and after I graduated with my degree in nutrition and I know a lot of, dietitians have some experience in public health, but when I was with them, their classes, their group nutrition ed was really structured. They, at least in my district, had purchased the curriculum already, and we really needed to stick to that. But when you were there, what was it like, and how were you able to use that time to build up your nutrition communication skills? I would imagine that at the time that I did WIC, and I did it part-time or full-time over a course of 20 years, starting in probably the mid-80s. And so it may be that being at that time that there weren't a lot of set curriculums. I actually developed a curriculum that was used nationally in WIC for teaching kids, but I also made it pretty clear in that in those lessons to improvise and make it your own and pick and choose and all the ideas I had. I don't, I guess I never felt like uh, I wanted people to feel really rigid. And so it may have depended on which state you were in or, or your particular district, but all the classes that I ever did at WIC, I developed myself, whether they be for adults or about breastfeeding or infant feeding or whatever, I created my own. And I always felt like I had so much creative liberty to do that. And then I also shared what I created with other people across my state and, and across the nation. Did the state office have to? Yeah. I, well, not like something I did locally. I mean, we would put in a plan that would list what what we were covering and maybe what our objectives were. So it wasn't like you didn't submit it, but right. I... <laughs> I don't remember anything ever not being approved. I did a lot of WIC training for, for a, quite a few of those years. I cr- traveled the country and taught other WIC programs how to do nutrition education. So it may have been that I was just in a, in a kind of a special 
status, but I don't think so. And it, and more recently, even after I was out of WIC directly, I did a lot of work when I was at Purdue in promoting family meals. And I did a lot of traveling and speaking about how to promote family meals. And that included in WIC programs and develop materials for that. Oh, that's really I, interesting. I guess my situation was always just very, I, I mean, they trusted that I knew what I was doing. Right. So maybe. <laughs> I probably had that liberty when I taught the Spanish speaking classes, but that was probably more because the people who would audit my classes didn't speak Spanish. So I, I did create <laughs> some <go>. games <laughs> and I had more freedom there. Well, you know, as, WIC, as, as I got closer to the end of my WIC days, one of the things that was somewhat frustrating to me was an emphasis on everything being really computerized. Because I was in WIC before computers came around. Mm. And so we were... We charted like in the old old days, paper and pencil things. And and once it got so that everything was computerized, there was all these checklists and all of these things that just made it so rigid. And so much of what makes education and counseling and all of that effective is tailoring it to the person you're with. Mm-hmm. So if if in order to get to C, you have to go through A and B, but they don't really need A and B, that's frustrating to me. Right. My experience was completely computerized. So our notes, really every single field you went to dictated what you needed to be discussing. And only after you got really comfortable with all of the information you had to enter, could you really actually have a conversation with the person and not just be doing data entry. And right near the end of my time, they even introduced computer-based nutrition ed classes. So if people wanted to skip the group class, which a lot of people do because people are pressed for time, you could take a really short, very simple nutrition ed class on the computer and it's not tailored to you. Everyone gets the same one. And a lot of this information is available other places. So the visit could be so much more, but because people want to save time, I don't think they always get the benefit that was originally intended with it having always been a nutrition education program. Yeah. So, but that things are always changing. So that is one of the challenges we kept dealing with in, in WIC being under that public health umbrella was how we communicate with people in a brief way but in an effective, clear way where our messaging can't be misunderstood. And that is still something that kind of escapes me. I don't feel like public health has mastered marketing the way other companies have, but maybe that's because the messages they need to communicate are not as complex sometimes. What have you found to be effective? If you need to get a message across in a brief way, what are some of the pitfalls that people tend to fall into that make them misunderstood? All right. So I would say the first pitfall is it's not tailored to what that person needs or understands. So it's, that is like the fundamental truth of education, nutrition communication is knowing your audience and, and giving the audience what they need. And, at a level that they can understand and connecting it to what's meaningful to them. That's just fundamental. And what usually people do is they teach from their level of comfort and knowledge. So if you have a lot of knowledge, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the curse of knowledge. Mm. (laughs) So, so people dump everything they know on this person, this unsuspecting soul that just wants to know this. But you tell them all of this and Mm. they're overwhelmed and they don't really need it all. They don't want it all. And so they walk away with nothing. And so it's so important to figure out what does my audience really need? What are they ready for? And it could be that you just start very small on that first visit. And it could be that, that that they're ready for more, but... Assess that. Figure out what they need. 
Know the audience. Way too many people just say, okay, I have this message, and they just blast it out there. It doesn't matter who you are. It's all the same. And it, it kind of goes back to that computerized kind of thing. And that isn't the best way to teach. Now, how do you tailor? I can imagine when you're doing one-on-one how you might tailor, maybe using motivational interviewing techniques or really letting the person you're speaking with guide where your counseling goes. But how do you assess what the audience needs when it's lots of people or it's a group? Okay, so so you may recall I sent you an email that asked who is your audience, right? Right. Right, okay, so... I know right now that the people listening are primarily people working in school nutrition. That, that's a narrower audience than just anyone that might be interested in nutrition education, right? Right. So I'm at, at some point when you ask a question about something, I'm going to be thinking about what example can I use that's related to school? And how can I know more about what goes on in school food service? Can I go in and visit people? Can I observe there? Can I send surveys to people that work in school food service? And so granted, everybody doesn't have the same problems, but they have very similar problems. And if you haven't had that problem this week, you probably had it in the past. And so you can relate to it. So you you get to know that audience as well as you can and understand where their pain points are. And, and then you figure out, all right, what is it related to this topic that we want them to, to know about and to, to think about and do? Where, you know, so here's our objective. This is where we'd like to get them. And then start back where kind of the people at the lowest level of, of knowledge and that are bring people, bring everybody up to speed. And so it's different in a group than it is one-on-one. You can't be quite as tailored but you still speak that language that that group understands and you use context that they understand mm-hmm. and you let, and you get them involved in designing that communication to the extent possible because that, that builds buy-in and that builds an interaction from the beginning that just that engagement and interaction just helps the communication be successful because you hear from them and then you, it's, very two-way. Communication is a relationship. Mm. It's not just delivering messages. That's really, uh, yeah, I haven't heard anyone say that before. In the book that, that I'm working on, that's one of the things that we're putting in as a very fundamental truth is this concept of a relationship between communicator and audience and how when you really focus on that as an objective in communication, you are so much more successful. Now, if it's a one-time communication, the rules remain the same and you engage the audience in designing the session, you mean prior to it, like as you're preparing and researching, or is that something that happens while you're engaging with the audience also? It could be either or. So it's going to depend. The amount of what I call doing a needs assessment prior to and during the design process, it's going to depend on resources that you have and time and whatnot. But the more time you invest in that, the the less mistakes you make and the more successful you'll be. So to the extent possible, to give you an example, I'm working on a webinar with another speaker that we're going to be giving to a a group in a couple of months. And we've developed a survey for their audience. And they kept kind of pushing us back to when we were going to do the survey to very close to the webinar. And we're like, but we want to use the information (laughs) to make the content. And so it took a while for us to get them convinced that we needed to do it now. And so there'll be times where you aren't going to be able to collect as much information ahead of time. And if that's the case, then build into the presentation itself or communication, whatever you're doing, some way to solicit input and feedback. It might be just the way you open, a, mm. a question that you pose. Maybe you're having, I, I really love doing big group classes like in a WIC setting. 
that are like a facilitated discussion. And so you open with something that tells you what where the audience is uh, on that topic, and then you can really adjust the way you present based on that. So often people miss the mark. Mm. So often. They come just from their own standpoint and not from what their audience needs. An audience, even though they're a group of people, have more similarities than you might think. And they so appreciate being heard and listened to. I travel a lot to speak. And let's say I'm speaking to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in the state of Minnesota or something. I am not going to be able to survey everyone in that association. But I might ask the uh, director if there's some people, key people that I might talk to. And I might just call one up on the phone and what's going on in your state related to what I might talk about. And then I'll include that example in my presentation. I might look up information about things that are going on there and include that. And time and time again, someone will talk to me afterwards like, wow, you really got to know us. Hmm. Well, not really. It really wasn't that hard. (laughs) I didn't do that much. But I didn't just walk in and do the same talk like everywhere. You're you. And I'm going to speak to you. How do you cover, like if you have an objective, well, I guess you always have learning objectives or outcomes that you want to hit. How do you tailor it and not lose sight of where you were headed? Because I've had that happen before where my goal was facilitated discussion and I lost track of time because people were engaging so much and I never, by the time, I just looked up and realized I was out of time, basically. <laughs> How do you stop that from happening? But yeah, and that, that can happen. And, and yet sometimes you have to adjust. Maybe, maybe what we accomplished was, was what needed to be accomplished. But, but so you can keep people on track. So, it, so a lot of times your objectives don't always change, but the examples that you use change or the way you explain it changes or just the context that you put it in. You come at it from the standpoint that is going to resonate with that audience. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so let's say we'll put it in a school food service example. So you're, you're wanting to promote the students eating more vegetables. You're not going to go into a kindergarten classroom and encourage them to eat vegetables in the same way that you go into a third grade or a sixth grade or a 12th grade classroom. Those are very different needs, very different audiences very different words you might use, different strategies. And educators know this, that those students are quite different. Well, in the same way, an audi- other audiences are different. You may have the same basic objective that you want to accomplish, but you're going to get to it in a different way. Hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So can you tell me a little bit about what the book aims to do. So you mentioned that one of the core concepts is that communication is a relationship between the speaker and your audience. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. So, so the book itself is, is, to, is Communicating Nutrition, the Authoritative Guide, is being published by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to cover a very broad topic of nutrition communication. So it includes 42 chapters that wow. covers everything from the basic theoretical basis of nutrition communication and how do you get the scientific evidence and ethics and, I mean, all the way to how do you write books and how you do podcasts and food photography and videography and all kinds of things. So it, it's a it's a great how-to book, but it's very practical. It's very evidence-based, and it really has this foundation of knowing your audience and communicating to meet their needs. And that is just reinforced chapter after chapter after chapter. So even though the content has all kinds of different pieces to it, it, it very, is very fundamental of, of the importance of knowing your audience and, and meeting them where they are and taking them where they need to go. It sounds like it covers a lot of territory. Were you able to cover all of that yourself or you needed to do collaborations? So 
uh, definitely collaboration. So when I was asked to do it, I could have had the option of being the sole author, but I said, no, that's just, I'm not an expert on everything that there is to cover. And there are so many talented people that can help with this. So we, we started with a very extensive needs assessment and we surveyed educators and I talked to them on the phone and, and we surveyed practitioners and, and collected a lot of information and figured out a, a pretty comprehensive, like 42 page outline of the book. And then we said, and I said, I can't do this alone. So we solicited for contributors. We had dozens of people volunteer. <laughs> so then we kind of figured out who would be the best. So anyway, we had, we ended up with 57 contributing authors. Wow. This is and dozens of reviewers. And then we've also pilot tested uh, all the chapters with educational groups out in universities across the country. So lots of involvement. And and again, it's just made the book so much stronger. Who is the intended audience? Is this going to be studied in the university setting? And it's also for people who are in the field or? It is because it's, it's the only book of its kind. It really had to cover both of those audiences, which is tough. But because so few dietitians had a nutrition communications course per se, their training in this area is so variable. I mean, it really is the rare dietitian that had a course like I taught at Purdue. And I certainly learned that as we, as we surveyed people. And so this book will actually help with that. There's quite a few institutions that are thinking of starting courses either at the undergraduate or the graduate level in nutrition communication. So this book will help with that. And so we are also collecting information about how best for people to incorporate the use of the book in their curriculum. So if you do have a course, great. But if you don't, how might you divide up the content over the four years that a student is studying as an undergraduate? Or how might you use it in, at the graduate level? How might you use it in supervised practice? So it really can be used for RDs to be in a variety of ways, but it also is a hugely helpful book to the person that's practicing. So you might have some knowledge in some areas, but maybe you want to get into creating video. Well, there's a chapter on that. Maybe you're interested in some food photography. There's a chapter on that or doing food demos or writing a book or writing grants or mastering the Q&A. There's an entire chapter on how to do a Q&A. Mm. There's a chapter on how to preside at a meeting. So it, it covers so many very practical communication skills. That's and, fantastic. And so There's is, definitely nothing like that. I can't even begin to think where all of that information might be on its own. In a lot of different places. I've <laughs> <laughs> researched them. No, it, it, there just wasn't a resource like this. And so it 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 started with the, the content that I taught in my class, but it expanded beyond that because I didn't teach how to write grants in my class or how to write a research paper or things like that. But it's like a journal article. I mean, it, we talked about research papers. The, and so it was just everything that we thought needed to be in there to the extent possible, we included. And it's written by people who they really know their stuff. That's exciting. Okay. And I honestly, because I have to read technical things for work, it, I, I just don't read like I used to. So this may be the only book <laughs> that I end up reading next year. I listen to books now, but this sounds like one where you actually have to sit down and take it in. Well, we do not write it in a really lofty way. It's very personal. It has first-person stories from the author's experience. We included practical checklists and lots of links to other resources. We tried to make it very readable. And the feedback we've gotten from people using it in our pilot testing, we've done it now for several semesters, is so positive. Students have, and, and I know students don't really like to read things anymore. Trust me. Right. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, them. you definitely know. <laughs> but they, they, loved it. And so that's just really exciting. So when I say 42 chapters, 
each one can be probably read in 30 minutes for for the most part. They're not long. Okay. Uh, we kept okay, them good. that way on purpose because we know people aren't voracious readers anymore. Right. And it will be available as both an ebook as well as a print book. Okay, good. I have started, I don't know if you've ever used, they have apps now that kind of push you to speed read so that you don't get stuck on one paragraph and then 10 minutes go by and you wonder why you're still on the same paragraph. So the words just continually flash across the screen. That's when I do read an ebook, that's how I read it these days. I don't know when oh. it happened. I used to love to sit down with a real book, but I don't know. That just, who knows? I guess another one of those things that changes as technology changes, you change your yeah, ways that are imperceptible at the time. But mm -hmm. yes. so when is that going to be available? Because that sounds like we all need this. So the, the book will be ready for purchase in the early part of 2020. Exactly when isn't known right now as we're speaking to each other. But I'll give you some of my social media handles. And so if someone follows me, I'll be keeping that group of people abreast of what's happening. But it will be available through the eatright.org bookstore. So that would also be a place to check. Okay, fantastic. And I know they always send out notifications as well when they're oh, yeah. releases. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exciting. Right. Is yeah, there if, a you're a, if you're a member or a dietitian, you will get that information. If you're not, it's still an appropriate book for someone that's working in the nutrition field. So I was going to ask about that because I know the field of health education is growing and there's a lot of overlap when it comes to public health and communicating with people who maybe don't have re really high health literacy or big interest in nutrition because they're not in the profession. I could see this being useful for them. Would this also be something that people who just, let's say you're a nutrition manager and you just visit classrooms on occasion with nutrition messaging, would this be where you would recommend they start or are there other resources for people who won't be doing mm -hmm. clinical, but they'll just be doing nutrition ed with school-aged children? I would say very possibly because there's, there's a whole section on how to tailor your messaging to an audience. And so it talks about different kind of ways to, to plan your messaging, how to write key messages, how to write learning objectives. It has, there's a chapter on, on reaching people of different ages, including kids. And then there's a whole section like, five or six chapters on giving effective presentation. And so that's just really useful for anyone that presents to a group of any size. So if you don't feel really strong in your public speaking skills, that's for you. So, so I would say there's parts of the book that you might not use, but I would say also another thing that probably a lot of people in school nutrition enjoy doing is, is what we would call a food demonstration. Food is such a perfect medium for teaching. And there's an entire chapter on how to do a food demo. Okay, that's going to be really handy. I haven't ever done a food demo without assistance because it feels like there's so many moving parts. It just completely overwhelms me. So I always partner with someone who's good at watching the clock and keeping things moving. Is that one of the biggest challenges to making a food demo work or why is it so hard? Well, probably one of the things that is essential in doing an effective food demo is preparation. So if you have your stuff all ready and you what what you demonstrate in front of that audience is what they need. So maybe with kids, you might really should be showing a technique of, say, how to chop something to another audience. They may already know that, so it's already chopped, and then you're just dumping it in. So there's... And you can have your recipe kind of at different stages so that it streamlines it and you have things on trays. And so there's a process to make it seem very seamless. But as far as timing, I mean, food demos can last an hour or longer if you have that amount of time. So it's, that's just a matter of practicing it within the amount of time that you have and making sure that you have things prepped so that you can be efficient and and also picking a recipe that is going to fit that time mm -hmm. as well. 
It's sort of like if you if you have two minutes spot on television to demonstrate something, that has to be really fast compared to you know sort of a cooking class type of environment. Right. And then given like if you're going into the schools, oh my, you just have to get the kids involved. Yes. And so preparing some things where they're doing either all of it for their own recipe or volunteers are coming up to to assist you. It's so much fun. So is, that's your favorite audience is smaller children or who's the most fun to teach? Oh, gosh. You know what? I actually love teaching everyone. I I don't know that there's an audience. I, I spend a lot of time in senior centers because that's where our mothers live and they're pretty cool people. I do really love kids. And I, I think one of the things that I've always enjoyed working with kids is they're so enthusiastic and they love you so much. I mean, if you need, if you need to up your hug quotient, just go into a class of little kids and they'll just be loving on you. And there's something pretty rewarding about that. And they just get excited about trying new things. I don't know. It just, and you feel like you have the ability to ha- make so much impact. But you know what? I also loved 16 years of teaching college students. They were pretty special too. And I've kept in touch with a lot of those folks. So were they very distinct from teenagers because they're more self-directed or they're there because they want to be there? It's not mandated by the state that they go to school during the day? Or did you notice there's still a lot of parallels between young adults? I probably my experience with high schools is kind of twofold. One, because my students had to go in and do lots of community presentations, I experienced a lot of going into high schools. That was not an unusual audience that they might pick. And so I would often talk with them about, you know, these students might just kind of be Blase, you know, you need to be very entertaining and really on point with what they want to hear about and that kind of thing in order to be effective. But, and I also developed a curriculum for the state of Maryland that was for high schoolers that was back in the early 2000s and did some traveling for that. But I think that a lot of it has to do with how effective you are. I mean, high schoolers can enjoy being in a class that really meets their needs and is really directed at them. But I would say it's easier to teach college students because, like you said, they're there because they want to be. And I was teaching them classes that they wanted to be in. You know, maybe if I was teaching the math class they had to take in order to graduate, it might have been different. I don't know. I've had some success, some, (laughs) teaching groups of teenagers, but when you try to assess what they might need. It seems like the only teenagers I know or are willing to let me pick their brain are not representative of the bulk of the audience. You know, like they're the studious kids who mm-hmm. volunteer to help adults a lot. Do you just need to accept teenage audiences may be blasé? Like it's just a fact of life. Well, it's, Okay, I don't know that I want to say accept. I think you want to acknowledge okay. that that's common, okay? Easily bored. Okay. Gotcha. And yet, you can figure out what they find fascinating and make what you have to teach them fit that and use approaches that are known to work with that audience. They can be pretty fun and engaged. So it's, it just, it's more challenging. Now, the the benefit of, say, the person listening to this who might go in and do a special class is you can master one great class that you create for that age group and just do it really well. You don't have to be in there with them every single day like their English teacher that knows that, you know, some days are going to be better than others. Right. And I still have to teach them how to diagram sentences. <laughs> you get to come in with something a lot more fun. And I think if you think about the fact that they have something to say, and if you can encourage them to talk and interact, which can be a challenge in itself, you just might be very pleasantly surprised with what you learn and 
how that can help build a really successful lesson. So really the rules remain the same that you have to know your audience. I guess sometimes it just feels, and this is probably a perceived barrier, maybe not a real barrier, is that it seems like teenagers are difficult to know because they are so influenced by the popular culture that they're ever changing. Their interests are constantly changing. But I guess the desire for independence and the desire to be heard is always going to be universal and it's really strong in your adolescent years. Oh yeah. And and they're real peer peer oriented. So you know, you do things that that capitalize on that. <laughs> you know, it's just the the kinds of things that are successful. I can remember going in and, and doing something that we had a big game show with teenagers. It was it was a hoot. I I mean so there's there's things that definitely work. And and I think a, a lot of it is being willing to seek them out and talk with them. If, if you're a person who your job is in the school, you have opportunities to, whether it be once a month, you make a point of going out and sitting in the cafeteria while they're having lunch and saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing a poll to get ready for such and such, but I'm going to be going into the classroom and I really want to know what you think of this. You might be surprised what they're willing to tell you. Hmm. That's a really good idea. <laughs> and you are there with them. You don't even have to like get permission to go to get in the door. You already have a parking spot. That makes a lot of sense. Before, I I feel like they're my, the audience that gives me the most anxiety. And things usually go pretty well. The worst that I've had is, and it was a funny time of day. It was too early, honestly, when I was asked to come in uh, to speak to a group of students in a class that was focused on career. So it wasn't really a nutrition ed class. And Uh some people couldn't stay awake. And I know that they have a different circadian rhythm, so I shouldn't take it personally. But I was just like, oh, my goodness, I'm bombing. I'm bombing. It just felt like a disaster. (laughs) And there were a couple of people who were engaged, but... I was like, ah, they're probably always engaged. And the teacher said they are. So, like, that doesn't tell me that, you know, I did a great job. You're always, you know, attentive. So they traumatized me. Yeah. Well, you know, in in a situation like that, I would think to myself, okay, I have to get this class up and moving. Mm. So I would think of some activity that they all had to stand up and they had to move to different parts of the room based on, would you rather be a plumber or an electrician? Go to, whether it's great or not. Would you rather, you know, eat the food that was made or prepare the food? And I don't know, you know, those kind of funny little activities. I would, I would just do something, I think, to get the group moving. That's a great idea. I, I am really into games. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you cover that? That's in there as well. For successful yes, there is a whole chapter on on how to interact with an audience. When you see an amazing presenter, it's so seamless that it's hard to pinpoint what the steps were. They seem so comfortable, even though I'm sure everybody feels a little bit of tenseness before they present. But I've been at some really great presentations where everybody got moving, sometimes just to elicit like one word from the audience. And Mm -hmm. just it sometimes seems like it calls for a level of creativity that I question whether or not we all have. But would you say this is a skill everybody can build? Absolutely. And and the thing is, success facilitates more success. So when you go in and you try an activity and you go, that was really pretty easy. I could do that one again. It it just makes you want to do it again. Yeah. And there's and and. Granted, there's going to be bad days where it just doesn't seem to work, but it's just not that hard to get an audience engaged and involved if that's, if you really make a point of it. Hmm. To just go in and lecture people, nobody wants to be lectured to. Nobody. Hmm. I don't like it (laughs) and I can handle it, but I'd much rather have something where I'm really engaged in thinking and I'm doing something and I'm talking about it and 
you know, if you have a talkative class, get them talking. Now, it has to be structured. They have to know when to listen. But if, if you have a talkative group, then allow them to talk. When you mention connecting to what's meaningful to your audience, do you mean things that they personally value or ways that they can use the information in their real life right after the presentation, essentially? I would say yes and yes. Okay. So it means, it means that you use an example that they understand and that is meaningful to them. So you, if you're teaching about cooking, that's going to be different to a group of teenagers than to a group of new parents to an empty nester. You just, it's a different context. And so whatever is meaningful is what needs to be the example that's used. And then how, again, they apply it is, is also, it's their lifestyle. It's their circumstance. And so that's where you can so often find out those things when you engage your audience ahead of time. And the better you know your audience over time that you keep working with an audience, the more you know these things. And yet it's still the task because they know you asked. Mm-hmm. There is so much value in that. I mean, if, if you went to a car dealer and they just were convinced you needed the red car and they never asked you what color you prefer, wouldn't you resent that? That's a great point. Yeah. Even if I thought I wanted the red car before I got there, I wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> no. So there's so many ways you can find out what is meaningful to an audience. It's, people skip this step more than anything else, and it is just the basis of everything. Okay. That I is really profound. That. It makes so much sense when you explain it. And I can think of presentations that I thought went super, super well. I did a ton of research, but usually it was motivated by an awareness that I wasn't familiar with who I was going in to see. But I can see presentations presentations that didn't go as well. I thought I knew my audience and I didn't really do that legwork. (laughs) And it, you know. So when yeah. <laughs> when I was in WIC, even we did a lot of outreach, and that was a lot of contacts with preschool age children and Head Starts places like that. And I'd never done story time before, and I promoted this huge event. I did so much research, literally interviewing every little kid I had in my office about like what's cool right now? Like what cartoons are you watching? What kind of songs do you like? What do you think about this song? What do you think about that song? They were so patient and so into being interviewed. (laughs) And the end product was fabulous, but I never thought to put all that work into trainings with the adults that are on our team. Cause I'm like, well, you know, you have to know this stuff. <laughs> That's the wrong attitude. So I can yeah. see applying that for sure. I, I cannot think of a time where I didn't do a needs assessment that I didn't find some surprise hmm. that, and I know a lot of audiences, but you just always learn something and it can really turn what you were going to do into something that's just really going to work. That definitely answers my question of how you go about creating a memorable nutrition contact. You have to do the lead work. You have to get to know your audience before you're in front of them. That's fundamental because if people remember something that meets their needs, they just do because they need it. Whereas if it's just cute or clever or a little wacky, they might remember it. But those are sort of the, the icing on the cake. I mean, yeah, you want to make things creative and maybe a catchy thing. But it, what's most important is that you have met their needs and you've done it in a way that's meaningful to them. How do you assess your success in a way that helps you grow? as a presenter? Oh, you just, you just keep learning and, and trying new things. One of the new things that I've been doing a lot for a little over a year is the use of humor in the presentations I do. 
And I've never thought of myself as a stand-up comedian uh, by any means, but I know it's a, it's a very effective approach to use. And so I've been doing a lot of talking about how to overcome this communication. And so I created all these characters that compete in this miscommunication pageant. I have this sash I wear. And so I have misunderstanding and misperception and misinformation. And, and so they have, and I have an artist that drew them. And then I tell these funny stories about each one. And then I get curious about how do you correct it? But it, it, humor is, is also a strategy that is sort of equalizing. We all like to laugh and it kind of lowers our stress. And it's hard, I think, a little bit for people to admit that we miscommunicate a lot. And we all are at fault in miscommunicating. And so it, it kind of helps personalize it and help us all kind of get on the same playing field. And then we say, okay, how do you communicate effectively so you can overcome all of these forms of miscommunication. And so this has just been an area for me as a communicator to just really kind of get outside my comfort zone and try something new. And it's been a lot of fun. And so I just, you just, it's like you saying, okay, I'm going to do a food demo or another thing that I just got on Instagram in April, I guess it was. And I still haven't done those video story things or live Instagram TV, but I'm going to, and so you just, there's always something new to learn right. and challenge yourself. So really just trying new things and you'll find yeah. opportunities for growth in those new ways of communicating. When it comes and, to determining what your audience got out of it, do you think it's better to have a, a assessment like a really, I don't want to say formative or qualitative, like what types of assessments are effective? Does it even matter? It's good to it's good to keep some records. So I I try to have like a a formal evaluation. It's pretty simple. And and I also try to collect kind of what they got out of it. That to me is is More really important. important. Okay. And so what are they struggling with? And that also helps me. I've done a whole series of blogs on the communication channels people challenges people say are the toughest for them. And so that is information I've collected from my audiences. They struggle with being concise, for example, or they struggle with clarity. And so I focused on that. So that's really helpful. A lot of feedback you get just in how they respond. If you're really tuned into your audience, you have a pretty good idea of whether you succeeded or flopped. Mm, right. And, and, how much they tell you afterwards that they loved it or or what or just walk away <laughs> as fast as they can. So but but it's I think it's really important to track what worked and what didn't and get feedback from audiences and, and recognize the fact that you don't please everybody. The same activity that ninety people out of a hundred loved, ten people weren't crazy about it. Does that mean you never do it again? No, you just you just know that people have different learning styles. And so that's one of the things we talk about in the book. You teach to a variety. You don't just teach to what you're most comfortable with or the way you prefer to learn. You include a variety of different things so that over the course of that presentation, everybody likes something. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. This is so helpful. This is, I'm really excited about the book. And I just can't imagine what useful content you've managed to get into. It seems like a large book, but it's covering so much territory. It's really impressive that you guys got it down to something <laughs> that we could uh, take on a chapter at a time in about 30 minutes. That's really good. I didn't even know people, do people typically test chapters? Is that common? Or that's just like a best practice that the Academy does or that's something you knew to do? Well, actually, it's not unusual for textbooks or large resource books to have a group of authors, mm -hmm. especially in something where the these authors did this with no compensation. Mm -hmm. So you, it's hard to ask somebody to write 
hundreds of pages for free, but they might collaborate with someone else on 15. Right. Okay. So, (laughs) so there's, there's, so there's that dynamic, but still it's when something is such a breadth of information, it's just so much better when it's written by people that that's what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the social media chapter is written by experts in social media and the chapter on grant writing is written by people who have written lots of grants. I could write that chapter, but I'd be, I'd be going to other stores and yeah, I've written a few grants, but not huge NIH ones or things like that. It's just a whole different level. Right. I mean, I have written a textbook all solely by myself. But some chapters are better than others, as far right. as I'm concerned. <laughs> and, and then also a book like that, it has a lot of input. So if you've never written a, a book like that, you have a variety of editors, everyone from someone called a development editor, and their specialty is kind of developing the concept and the organization of it. And then you've got review editors and copy editors and artistic editor. And so it's, it's just a whole team of people before that book ever gets released that have had their eyes on it and helped make it what it should be. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting to know. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes in. And it's, it's a several year process. We started this book in 2016, the year I retired. Oh, wow. Three years, and that's been your main project? Yep. Wow. Absolutely. Okay, impressive. Now, I'm super, super excited (laughs) to know all that. I'm like, this is going to be great. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. There there are so many takeaways there. Uh, Where can we find you on social media so that we can keep up with the release date and other things that you're up to? Yes, and, and I put tons of content on my website and on social media that is all 100% free. So find me at Nutrition Communicator. So www.nutritioncommunicator.com is my website. And really for my website, you can find all my social media. But I'm on Facebook as Nutrition Communicator. Twitter, that's too long a word, so it's the capital N and then Communicator. And Instagram is Nutrition Communicator. I'm also on Pinterest, but not a lot. <laughs> And so I wouldn't like really promote that. I, I always make, I always post my blogs on Pinterest and it's like communication tips. And I'm trying to remember if I'm nutrition communicator or my name. LinkedIn, if you're on LinkedIn, I'd love to link with you. And that's just my name, Barbara Mayfield. Perfect. So I, I love to connect with people via social media and I like to do it very authentically. I don't hire other people to comment <laughs> or like other people's stuff. It's, it's all me done in real time. So. That's awesome. Great. Amazing. Awesome. I mean, social media is, I can still remember the day that we sat down as a faculty at Purdue when social media was new and said, how are we going to teach this about this? And back then it was just all about, well, we just need to tell them to be professional and keep safe. I, we had no idea that it would be used to disseminate so much information and for marketing and, and just so many things. Right. It's really changed how we how we share information and it's becoming a lot more I don't want to say challenging but you're less visible if you haven't really mastered how to use every platform whereas before it seemed like everyone's message was out there and visible and then the algorithms start changing and every platform's a little bit different and sometimes you don't even see the things that people post that they're the whole reason you're there and you still don't see it. One of the best ways to make sure you're going to see somebody's stuff is to comment on it. Mm. And so that's one of the messages that I try to give to people is be engaged on social media. Don't just, don't just sit there and absorb it, but be engaged with it because what you engage with, they'll give you more of it. And it also helps the person that you're engaging with, their message will also do better in those algorithms. Gotcha. So it, it, it's a win-win for you to engage, whether you like something, commenting is even better, sharing is even better than that. 
So I, that's one of the things I've really worked hard at is every day commenting on other people's stuff. And it's amazing how that has probably increased my visibility as much as my own content. Now, how do you because come it's, it's up sort of with like something? People get to know you. Well, sometimes so do you ever feel like you don't have anything significant to say. Like you may like what they've posted, but it's not really in your wheelhouse and you don't have anything meaningful to say. Then I probably wouldn't comment on it. Okay. <laughs> but there's plenty of stuff that I, there's plenty of people I follow and, and I have like in LinkedIn or whatever, I've seen the kinds of things. So I have hashtags, but these are things I follow. So communications, leadership, blah, blah, blah. And so those kinds of things come into my feed. And so there's just lots of things that I feel like I can comment on. Or if I know the person that wrote it, then I might comment. Hi, Bailey, it's great to see you. I recognized your smile from class or whatever. So, I mean, like, I really, I do keep in touch with, with former students. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. And they, I mean, yeah. goodness, what a fast way to grow a network too, since people go off in all these different directions. That's it's that so is. rewarding. I mean, today, just today, I got two stories from former students that I posted on my website. And it's just, it's, it's sort of like when your kids are in the dance recital, you're like really proud of what <laughs> they've accomplished because you had a little part in helping them get there. And so they're proud to share with you what they've done. And it's just very rewarding. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's an awesome way to use LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure that none of my, maybe some of my professors are there, but I wish that that would have been a tool because it is nice to show them what you've done with what you've learned. And sometimes you realize later on how valuable something they told you was and you don't ever get to tell them. So, well, just this summer, I was working with the person who's the newest professor to teach the class since I retired. She's still the third person. (laughs) I think she's going to do really well. So we met together and, and I was kind of sharing about some of the exciting things that students were doing. And she said, boy, that'd be really cool to be able to share that with the students. I thought, oh, I'll put out something on Facebook to send me testimonies. Oh, they came pouring in, pouring in. And so I just keep sending her these pictures and clips of them being on the media (sighs) and the little paragraphs that they wrote about how they use the class. And I think to myself, why did I do this when I was teaching class? (laughs) But it was also very rewarding to me to read these and go, yes, you know, that. Yeah. It's always nice to know that what you did was worthwhile. That's awesome. Because sometimes, especially when you're doing health education or something where your contact with people is brief, you don't get to see how it plays out or how what you're um, sharing with them benefits them at all. So it's awesome to actually get to see it. So that's cool. But when you, you know, when you do save it, you know, like write it down. I have a few stories like that. I just recently over the summer ran into somebody or met someone. I didn't know I'd known them. And so I was introducing myself and I said, I don't think I've met you. And, and she said, well, I know who you are because two years ago you went to my daughter's preschool and she came home about all the foods that you had had her taste and how much of an impact that made. I was like, you're kidding. Oh, that's <laughs> <was> like, awesome. <laughs> so you never know. And I thought I'm going to, you know, write that down in my that's little gratitude really book. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm I'm actually I'm writing that down. I mean I take notes after this, but I'm like, I'm writing that down because once it happens, the way your brain works, you retain anything negative so that you can avoid danger in the future. Um and everything positive is like in one ear and makes you happy for like yep. a second and then it's gone. <laughs> so that's well, a great I tip. To, yeah. And I and I have so often told students when I was mentoring them that you know, if someone made an impact on you, send them a thank you note. You will make their day. <laughs> you have no idea how meaningful that is and how rare it is. And some took it to heart. And but it really we we don't thank each other enough. Yeah. 
I agree with that. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And that, that encourages people to do more of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever it was that made a difference. So that's an excellent point. That's a great point to close on. Thank you so much. This is so, so much wisdom for one little hour. I hope you got as much out of this conversation with Barbara as I did. Obviously, a lot of the tips she gave really go beyond nutrition education. The way she views communication as a relationship between the presenter and the audience is really profound. And the focus on tailoring information to our audience, regardless of the size of the audience, is just priceless. Barbara and I are both open to whatever questions remain unanswered after this episode. Please reach out to us if there's anything else you would like us to address. I can clear up questions on social media or in a short follow-up recording. As always, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others every time you hear something of use. Hopefully, that'll be every episode. All right, see you next time.